words have power. That silly playground phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is just not true. Words have power. Positive example, on January 20th of just this year, at the inauguration of President Joe Biden, the 22-year-old youth poet laureate Amanda Gorman delivered the inaugural poem at the inauguration. It was her own poem. It was titled, The Hill That We Climb. It was a poem that was meant to call Americans to the high ideals of this nation's founding. And for a few days, it worked. For a few days, it was inspiring. In fact, hardly a a person had much at all negative to say about Miss Gorman's poem. Most were impressed, if not inspired, by the words that she delivered that day. But the inspiration of this bright young woman is hardly winning the hearts and minds of many in our still-divided nation so many weeks after her poem's public delivery. Words do have power, but human words all too easily fail to light the dark corners of the human heart for very long. Grass withers, flowers fade, and human words of wisdom dissipate with the passage of time like so many dandelion seeds on a windy spring afternoon. If we as humans are to be changed, really inspired, we need a better word. We need an unfailing word. Not merely a lively word, but a life-giving word. Not just a truthful word, but a word that is itself true. We need a word better than the empty claims of so many wise men and sages. We need the word of an eternal, knowable, loving, just, good, and sovereign God. Words have power. The word of God is a wonderful word with much power for those who will listen to it. Here in Nehemiah chapter 8, as we keep following along the the events of the lives of the people of Judah as they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city and then to be rebuilt as God's people there, the people of Judah will gather in the city within the walls of Jerusalem in order to hear the word of God and and, and, and they respond to it with sorrow for their sin and rejoicing in God's grace. And all of this repenting and rejoicing culminates in their celebration of the Feast of Booths as we will see in Nehemiah chapter 8. There is one thought that permeates Nehemiah chapter 8 and it is the thought that summarizes in three sort of short phrases my philosophy of ministry as a pastor. The main idea of the text that comes to us uh, this morning in Nehemiah 8 is this. The Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. The Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. And as we see this truth clearly displayed to us in Nehemiah chapter 8, I pray that we would come to expect God's Word, these Scriptures, Old and New Testament, to work powerfully in us, church, in order to lead us to repentance, to lead us to deeper faith, and to lead us to greater obedience to the Lord. Will you then stand with me as we honor God's Word, as you're comfortably able, as we'll begin with the first part of Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 8. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Nehemiah, that leader of Judah, writes these words. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. 
And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early in the morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalaita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is God's word. You may be seated. The word of God does the work of God in the people of God. We find in these first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8 that God's people need God's word. God's people need his word. This chapter introduces us to Ezra, who himself is the subject of the sort of first volume of the shorter history of the exiles that returned to Judah, uh, a book that bears his own name just before Nehemiah, titled Ezra. We're introduced to Ezra in the course of Nehemiah, who already has been in Jerusalem for about 13 years by this point. He returned with another wave of exiles from Persia several years before. And during that time, he has been teaching and leading the people of Judah spiritually. As a priest and a scribe, he has been teaching the people the word of God. And now here in chapter 8, we're told that it's the seventh month. It's the first day of the seventh month. And the seventh month is one of the holiest months in the life of the people of Israel in the Old Testament and continues to even today. There were three major feasts that took place during this month. On the first day of the seventh month was the Feast of Trumpets. On the the tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement, the day known as Yom Kippur, when all of the people would gather together to have their sins atoned for through sacrifices offered by the high priest in the temple and taken into the Holy of Holies. And then on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was celebrated. During the Feast of Booths, during the Feast of Tabernacles, every seven years there was a releasing of debts that anybody among the people of Israel owed to one another. And there was a public reading of the law to remind the people of who they were and who created them, who called them by His Word, and, and, and how they were to live with God by His Word. What I love, so evident from us, from, or evident to us from verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8, is that the people in Nehemiah's day want God's word. All the people gather as one man into the square before the water gate. Now, the water gate is on the eastern edge of the city in Jerusalem at this time. And it was kind of there in the, the uh, just a public area, center of, of commerce there within the city. This is a, an event, a public reading of scripture that does not take place in the temple, but out in the streets, accessible to everyone. And we read in verse one that the people told Ezra, bring the book, bring the book of the law of God that the Lord has commanded us. 
The people want God's word. Bring it to us. Open it, Ezra. Read it to us. We need God's word. We want God's word. Now, are they saying this in obedience to the law of God, that his word should be read publicly? Yeah, sure. But notice that they prepared for this day. They gathered together as one man, showing solidarity in purpose and intention for being here to hear the word of God. And they built a wooden platform for this occasion. They didn't throw this thing together out of scrap wood the day of. They've been planning for the first day of the seventh month for Ezra to stand on this platform and to read God's word over his people. There's a broad audience of folks that are gathered here to hear God's word. It's not just select people. It's not just the well-educated. It's not just the priestly class that show up on this occasion. We read that there are men and women, adults of both genders, gathered together in this place to hear God's word, along with, catch this, all who could understand. Which means, dear friends, that there were probably children and adolescents being uh, present in worship. Just make a sidebar here for a moment. This is why, dear friends, we have every child who's five years old and older in worship with us together on Sunday mornings because they are able to understand. And and even if they can't understand maybe all the big words that I use from the pulpit, dear parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters with children sitting next to you, you have the ability to explain to them as well. So it's important for children and adolescents to be present among God's people to worship. This day of gathering, though, on the first day of the seventh month, when the people say, we want the word, bring the book, is no formality. They're not gathering together. It's just part of some, some pat religious exercise. We read in verse 3 that all the, ear, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So they tell Ezra, Ezra, bring the book. And Ezra opens the book, and he reads the book. And what do the people do? They listen. They listen. They engage their minds. They open their ears. They, they eliminate distractions so they can hear the word of God read to them, read over them. We see great reverence for the word of God among the people that God has called by his word. They stand out of reverence when Ezra opens the book. We stand in honoring God's word as it's read every Sunday morning. Understand, friends, physical posture is is not so important as heart posture. It doesn't matter if you stand or sit or kneel with your face to the ground or stand with your hands in the air when the Word of God is read. What matters is the posture of your heart. And if standing gives physical movement to the posture of your heart, which says, God, I must hear your word. I need to hear your word. I need to be focused on it without distraction. If standing helps you to do that, then, dear friends, stand when God's Word is read. They want God's word, and it's evident in everything that they do. But their need for God's word requires something more. Their desire for God's word motivates them to show up on this day, to command Ezra to bring the law, but their need for the word requires more. It requires translation and explanation. In verse 4, we read that Ezra stood and read the law. And he reads with 13 others beside him, likely priests and scribes as well. Some on his right hand, some on his left hand. And I I won't uh, butcher all their names by reading them aloud again. But he stands there with other priests as he reads the law. And as Ezra reads, there are Levites. These are servants of the temple who are going about among the people. And in verse 8, we find that they read clearly. 
They read the law of God clearly. That word clearly means with interpretation or paragraph by paragraph. Very likely the word that Ezra read was written in Hebrew, but these people who had lived in exiles in Persia for so very long had come to speak Aramaic. So Ezra's reading in a language that they don't readily speak fluently. So what do the Levites do? They go about among the people as they're gathered there in the city. They read the law of of God again in Hebrew. They translate it into Aramaic, and then they give the sense. They interpret the law and apply it to the lives of the people so that, as verse 8 tells us, the people understand the reading. Dear friends, it is so important that we not only read God's word, but that we understand it. We, we must not merely want God's word. We must understand that we need God's word. And in needing it, we have to, we have to come to see that, that we need to understand what it means and what it's saying. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with one of our church members uh, who works at, uh, at the Sandia Labs, and he was telling me what he does. He works, I think, in particle physics or something like that. And we were having this conversation about what he does at work. And all the words that he, were, he, was, he was using in that conversation with me were English words. And he used them in standard English grammar and syntax. Yet the context in which he, he put those words together made it such that I had no idea what he was actually talking about. I knew all the words he was saying and had no idea what he meant. I, I needed him to explain it to me like I was a five-year-old. Because the work that he does every day is just so far above my head. Consider, friends, we often need the same thing when we come to God's Word. Sometimes we we read God's Word and we we have an abundance of good English translations of God's Word. But even we'll read it in English, translated from Hebrew, from Greek. We'll read it there in plain English and still we'll go, I'm not sure if I know what that means. We need someone to explain it to us. We need, we need to engage the Word with others who have, who, who, have, who have done work and done study to understand some of the context. It's good for us to come together with others who have just been gifted by the Holy Spirit to be able to teach God's Word so that we can understand it as well. The people of God need God's Word, and they want it too, which is so good that we see from these first eight verses. But follow along with me as the narrative continues. Verses 9 through 12. We read that Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all of the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Ezra said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. God's people need God's word, but also we find that God's word works among God's people. God's word has effect. It has power. It does things in the hearts of his people. Verse 9 tells us that as the word of God, the law of God is read and explained to the people, that there is a a real and deep emotional impact upon those who hear the word of God. They begin weeping. They begin mourning, crying publicly. What in the world were they reading? Very likely they were reading from the law, probably from the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe even from Deuteronomy chapter 28, where there towards the end of 
That book is God is speaking through his servant Moses to the people of Israel before they enter into the land of Canaan. God tells them all of the things that will come upon them if they disobey his law, if they live idolatrously, if they worship other gods, if they walk in faithlessness toward Yahweh, the God of the universe. And in those covenant curses, God says this, Deuteronomy 28, 64 through 66. There's a lot more to this than that, but the Lord says through his servant Moses that if you disobey my commands, if you live idolatrously, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve the gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations, you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing, your, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. No wonder these Judahites are mourning. No wonder they are grieving. They have seen that their time in exile, as exiles in Persia, was precisely what God said he would do to his people if they rejected him. A thousand years before, God said, this is what I will do if you disobey me, if you walk away from me. And surely enough, the people of Israel did exactly that. And God was good to his word. He scattered them to the nations. And here these, return, these people who have returned from exile to, now to Jerusalem are going we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Everything God said he would do to our people, he's done. Perhaps he's forsaken us forever. Perhaps there's no hope for us at all. We have, we have sinned and God is now giving to us the due recompense for our sin against him. He kept his word because we were faithless to him. Friends, we must understand this morning, conviction of sin and sorrow over your Offense against God is one way that God's word works in us. Sometimes we read God's word and and we see it as a mirror to our lives, showing us all of the sinful blemishes of our hearts. And we're grieved by our sin. We're grieved by our rejection of God. We're grieved by our disobedience to Christ. And that is God's word doing its work in us. Friend, if you read God's word and you are convicted of sin and and sorrowful over it, good. Let God's word work. Repentance is a right right response to God's word. Grief over sin, confessing it to the Lord, seeking to turn from it and, and return in faith to him is a good thing. It is the right response of the people here in Nehemiah chapter 8, but it's not the best response, you see. Rather than repentance, the right response of hearing God's word on this day in Nehemiah 8 is rejoicing. Nehemiah and Ezra say to the people, stop crying. Stop mourning. This is a good day. The return to Jerusalem is is evidence to the people, as Nehemiah and Ezra understand, evidence to God's people of another part of the law that comes after the covenant curses. If you go back to Deuteronomy and you you read through Deuteronomy 28, the covenant blessings and the covenant curses, and you keep going on, you'll eventually come to Deuteronomy chapter 30, where in verses 1 through 6, God says this, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. 
He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the othermost parts of heaven, even from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed so that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. Nehemiah and Ezra instruct the people not to grieve. Don't mourn. Be glad. Rejoice. Eat the fat. Drink sweet wine. That sounds like a really weird dietary combination. But in that day, it's a good that you're eating the best choice, uh, the, the most choice cuts of meat that day. It's a day for feasting. This is a day, Nehemiah and Ezra tell the people, for remembering God's extravagant grace and faithfulness to sinful and faithless people. It's a day for feasting, not a day for fasting. Because God has, has yes, has he, he has brought the covenant curses upon his people, but he's also brought about his promise to bring his people back to their land as they turn to him. Often, friends, God's word brings us to mourn our sin, to lament our disobedience to him. And when it does, we should. But equally as often, friends, God's word points us to the extravagant, extravagant grace of God towards sinners. And in as, in as much and, and as often as God's word points us to his extravagant grace to those who turn from sin and trust in him, we should rejoice. Amen. God's word works in God's people. And in Nehemiah 8, it leads them to repentance of sin and also rejoicing in the salvation and the faithfulness of God. But the story goes on. We read in verses 13 through 18. On the second day, all of that was on day one, reading for half the day, morning and then rejoicing in the afternoon. Then the next day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found, and they, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all of their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild, uh, branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves, like temporary structures made out of leafy branches, each on his roof and in their courts and in, their, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that's Joshua, the leader who followed Moses. From the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was, a very, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. God's people need God's word. God's word works in the hearts of his people. And we see in these final verses of Nehemiah chapter eight, that God's people are shaped by God's word. The way they live, the way they worship, the way they interact with each other as God's people is shaped by the word of God. Verse 13 gives us a wonderful insight into the hearts of the fathers of the people. They came on the second day to study the words of the law. One day was not sufficient for these men. One day of Bible reading and preaching and teaching and understanding was not enough. They hungered for more. 
And not mere spoon feeding of the word of God, but personal study. They came together to say, we need more. Oh, for men in the church who will come on the next day and say, we need more. These men, as they study God's word on the second day of the seventh month, these heads of the fathers' houses come together to to intake God's word, to consume God's word, to study it that they might understand it for themselves, but more to study it that they might be able to teach others as well. In this way, they are fulfilling the the, the God-given mandate to fathers among the people of Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, when God says, These words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Here we have a beautiful example of men of God, men of the people of God who say, it's my job to lead, it's my job to teach, it's my responsibility given to me by God to make sure my family knows the life-giving word of God. I'm going to go study it that I might teach it. Dear men, there's an example for us here. The result of their study the result of these men coming together to study the word is that they find that the Feast of Booths is coming. As they're reading God's word, they come upon Leviticus chapter 23 and they go, oh, there's something we need to do soon. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 39 through 43, God gives instruction to his people for the uh, for eight days during the seventh month that they are to celebrate this Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. The Hebrew name for this feast is Sukkot, which is just a word that means tent or tabernacle. And during those eight days, they're supposed to live in temporary shelters made out of leafy branches that they've gathered from trees in order to celebrate at the end of the harvest season God's provision to them, but also to remember God's deliverance. This harvest feast, this harvest festival is not just to say, thanks God for a good harvest. It's actually meant to also remind them of God's previous redeeming and delivering work. The Lord gives instruction in Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 42. Listen, he says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This feast was to remind the people at the time of harvesting the fruit of their agricultural labor that God had preserved them for 40 years in the wilderness after bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. In this way, agricultural harvest was a time for remembering the provision and the care of God during an historic time of spiritual and physical need. In verses 17 and 18, Nehemiah says, tells us that the Feast of Booths was not practiced since the time of Jeshua or Joshua, the son of Nun. This is an interesting statement that Nehemiah makes because as we read the Bible, we see that the Feast of Booths is mentioned as being practiced earlier in Israel's history, uh, after the time of Joshua and before this time in 2 Chronicles chapter 8 under Solomon, the king of Israel, and also in Ezra chapter 3 among the first waves of exiles returning from Persia to Jerusalem. So what is Nehemiah doing here? Is this a contradiction in God's word? No, I don't think so. At first glance, Nehemiah's note that the Feast of Booths had not been practiced when twice in Scripture we have it recorded as being practiced, it seems to contradict the biblical witness. But at the same time, Nehemiah's purpose here is to focus uh, our attention, the reader's attention, on the rebuilding of God's people. 
to live with resolved faith and intentional obedience to God. So when he says the feast had not been practiced since the time of Jeshua, he's giving an exaggerated statement. He's speaking in hyperbole. An exaggeration that's probably meant to imply that the purpose of the Feast of Booths, remembering God's deliverance of Israel from slavery, that part of the feast had not been observed. Over the many centuries and generations before, it had been practiced as a harvest festival. Hey, we had a good harvest. Let's go live in tents for a week. All the while forgetting to intentionally remember that God had caused them to live in temporary structures for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness after he delivered them from slavery. In this case, the memory of redemption, remembering God's deliverance from Egypt this year in the Feast of Booths in Nehemiah 8, would have taken on special significance in the life of the people of Judah as they're being returned to the land after a time of sojourning as exiles in a land that was not their own. In the same way that God delivered the Israelites about a thousand years before this moment out of slavery in Egypt, so now also he has delivered his people again from being exiles in a foreign land. And so this picture of God redeeming and rescuing, delivering his people is just fully on display. It's, it's tangible. It's, it's palpable. It's all over their own life. And so they're remembering God's deliverance from a thousand years before in a special and memorable way on this particular day, knowing that God has done it again. Even during the day of the feast, Ezra reads from the law as commanded. Homeboy read for a week straight. I don't know how his voice held out. But every day during the feast, Ezra reads from the law as commanded in the law. And on the final day of this eight-day feast, this eight-day celebration of God's provision and deliverance, the people gather together for a solemn assembly to the Lord. The word of God shapes the people of God. It directs them to to feast and to celebrate and to worship in specific ways that remind them of God's provision and God's deliverance year by year on a a calendar-like, well, it's not a calendar-like rotation, it's just a calendar rotation. Their year was, was determined by these celebrations of God's faithfulness and deliverance that he had given to them in his word. His word shapes how they live as his people. It shapes their worship. It shapes their remembrance. It shapes the songs that they sing. It shapes their their time of, of public reading of God's word and how it is explained to them. God's word is meant to be right in the center of all that his people are and do. Friends, does God's word shape the rhythms and patterns of our life like this? The word of God does the work of God and the people of God. We've seen that God's people need his word and that his word is effective. It works in the hearts of his people. And it's meant to shape our lives. Do our lives take on the shape of God's word? Is our worship full of God's word? Are the songs that we sing full of truth from God's word? Are the sermons that are preached on Sunday morning from God's word? Are the prayers that we pray reminiscent of the promises of God and the calls of God in his word. Do we repent and confess sin regularly as God's word calls us to? Do we pray for those who are confessing and repenting of sin so that they may be healed as God's word calls us to? We're pointing our lives in every glorifying way to Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who gave his life to rescue sinners 
who didn't deserve it, to be his people? Are we pointing our lives in every worshipful way to Jesus as God in his word commands us to? God's people need his word. His word works in their lives, and his word is meant to shape their lives. Friends, is it? I have one point of application for us this morning. One big fat so what to go home with today. So don't miss this. Knowing that the word of God does the work of God in the people of God. If you desire, Christian, if you desire, friend, for God to work in your life, you need to first receive his word. If you want God to work in your life, you need to first receive his word. Nehemiah chapter 8 clearly illustrates this truth, that the word of God is necessary and sufficient for building his people. We said last week, and we, and we see displayed again, and we will through the rest of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah is not about rebuilding a wall so much as it is, as it is about God rebuilding his people. And how does he rebuild his people in Nehemiah 8? Through his word. Understand this, for the church of Jesus Christ today, the people of God today in the 21st century, his new covenant saints, the word of God is still necessary and sufficient. That means it is enough for building his people. Understand what God in his word says about his word. All creation we know is accomplished by the word of God as he speaks it into existence. Genesis 1, the Lord, the, uh, God said, let there be light, and there was. His word has creative power. But his word doesn't just create what we see and feel and touch. His word doesn't just create the universe and human beings. His word also creates his very people called by his own name. God creates a people by his own word, first by his word spoken to Abraham and then affirmed to his son Isaac and his son Jacob, who was later called Israel, calling them to himself and covenanting with them by his word in Genesis 15 and 26 and 28. God's word not only creates the universe and his people, but God's word sustains his people. The purpose of manna in the wilderness, that coriander seed-like substance that appeared on the ground every morning as the people who were delivered from, the Israelites who were delivered from slavery in Egypt wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. That manna that was on the ground that they collected to make bread with each day was meant to teach the people that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word sustains his people. The law of God being the content of his covenant with Israel in the Old Testament, the law of God that the people read in Nehemiah 8 was also that which defined their relationship to God and his relationship to them. As Psalm 119 recounts over and over again, the law of the Lord is delightful and sweet. It is instructive, a light to his people. Apart from God communicating in words to us, he cannot be known definitively or truly. Unless God speaks, we cannot know him. But because God has spoken and because his word has creative power, it is sufficient for sustaining those that he creates by his word. All these aspects of God's word, dear friends, do not fade away with the new covenant. When Jesus comes, the word and the power of the word of God don't go away. Rather, all of those things are reaffirmed. God doubles down on his word. We are told in John's gospel, chapter one, that Jesus, the son of God, is the incarnate word of God. The word of God made flesh through whom God speaks most clearly, as Hebrews chapter one tells us. 
the scriptures of the New Testament are the word of God that point the world to Jesus, the Son of God. All scripture being exhaled by the Holy Spirit of God is profitable for everything that is necessary for living as God's new covenant people in Christ, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. The scriptures are, as we have them in the Old and New Testament, are also living and active revealing the heart of every man and and every man's need for salvation from sin and a right relationship uh, with God through faith in Jesus, his son. We read that in Hebrews 4, 11 and 12, or 12 and 13 this morning. The word of God still creates his people, dear friends, as his word is proclaimed and faithfully received by faith and repentance by all who trust in it, Romans 10 and 2 Timothy 4. The Word of God, these scriptures that we hold in our laps this morning, being the preservative, informative power of God's people, has what was the focus of God's old covenant people and all the more the focus of his new covenant people, as Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 to devote himself to the public reading of the scriptures. There is no human word of wisdom, there is no human promise that will ever surpass or exceed the Word of God. Thus, the church of Jesus Christ Himself, the incarnate Word of God, the church of Jesus Christ are to be a people of this book. It teaches us who God is. It reveals our sinful hearts and our place of judgment in the presence of a holy God. This Word points us to the grace of this holy and just God who provides a means of satisfying His justice against our sin and saving our souls for His glory. And it points clearly to how we may have sure confidence of this saving, of this salvation, without any doubt whatsoever. This Word tells us that we who are sinners, what we need most in the world, what we need most in this life and any life, is to be made right with God who created us. Created us for His glory created us for worship, created us for this purpose, to declare him among the nations. And he renews this purpose in us. He gives us new life, a new heart. He revives our soul, bringing it from death to life, from darkness to light, as we come to Jesus, God's own son, God in flesh, who gave his life to pay for your sins and for mine and who raised that life victoriously from the grave three days later so that all of us who trust in him may not only be right with God, but also have everlasting life because Christ has been raised from the dead. This word points us to that truth. There's no other word that points us to that reality. The word of God only points us there clearly. Understand this morning that if there will be revival in our hearts, it will come from the conviction of sin and the hope of salvation that comes from God's word. If we will pursue any work for God as a church or as individual Christians or commit ourselves to any mission, it must be the one clearly found in the pages of God's word. If God will be glorified in us, church, he will be glorified for all that he has demonstrated is beautiful about himself in his word. If disciples of Jesus are to be made among us, they will be made through faith in the gospel that God's word declares and in obedience to the commands of Christ that have been written in this word. If we're to have any ability to fulfill this mission of God, it will only come through the Holy Spirit of God who inspired the written word of God and who calls us back to it to hear God speak daily. Friend, do you want to hear God speak? Read your Bible out loud. 
God's Word is not a tool for feeding yourself. It is life itself. God's Word does not give us a way to think about God. It is the way to know God. Scripture is not a guide to self-help, friends. It is a light to your undeserved salvation. The Bible does not help you to be happy. It shows you that you need to be holy. Friends, we need to know and understand God's Word. The Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. If we want God to work in us, we need, we must understand and, ha- and have our lives shaped by His Word. We need it, but do we want it? A funny thing happens when what you need becomes the very thing that you desire. When your desires and your needs mesh up, come together. There's about a month, 30 days during my time in seminary, long before I married Nikki, when I was functionally vegetarian for a month. (laughs) Keyword, functionally, not convictionally. Functionally vegetarian for a month. I, I wasn't feeling very healthy, uh, wanted to lose some weight, needed to exercise, felt like I needed exercise discipline in some other areas of my life. And so I thought, I'll start here. I just won't eat meat for a month. We'll see how that goes. And it started kind of flippantly. I mean, I knew I needed to get healthy, and I thought, hey, just not eating meat for a month, that'll help. Uh, McDonald's uh, serves mostly hamburgers, and if I don't eat meat, I won't make late-night runs to McDonald's. That'll help for something, I'm sure. So for a month, I was functionally vegetarian. Uh, not, 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 not vegan because I still ate eggs <laughs> and, uh, and yogurt and other things, but supplemented the rest of my diet, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables and salads. I ate so much salad. The first week of being functionally vegetarian was absolutely horrible. <laughs> you, you like, you got to detox from the meat, right? You got to detox from McDonald's or whatever fast in and out burger. Oh, for an in and out in Albuquerque. You got to detox from that stuff. And detoxing hurts. It's hard. It's difficult. But after a while, you kind of fall into the rhythm of eating vegetables, fruits, nuts, and other things that are good for you. And do you know what, I, what happened by the end of that 30 days? I felt awesome. I had lost some weight. I felt like I could think more clearly. I didn't need to sleep as long at night. I woke up refreshed. I, I went to sleep even, even easier. Uh, I was able to focus more intently in class. Like everything just cleared up. It was like being half blind and then putting on glasses for the first time. I'm just eating vegetables for a month for the most part. And I came to find at the end of that month that the thing that I needed, a healthier diet, became the thing that I wanted. That first week of being functionally vegetarian was horrible. But the fourth week was delightful. I began to enjoy picking up a stalk of celery. That sounds crazy. And digging into it, right, for nutrients. And there's not much nutrients in celery, but you get the idea. Just the love of of, of eating those things and knowing that what I'm eating is, is giving me life and health and vigor and vitality. I didn't necessarily want it at first. I needed it. But in filling my body with what I needed, I came to love it. Obviously, I haven't been functionally vegetarian for a while. But something funny happens when what we need becomes what we also want. The Word of God does the work of God in the people of God. We may know and confess 
daily that we need it. But friends, do we want it? I dare say that the only way you'll come to want God's word is to start ingesting it. You've got to develop a taste for it. And as you see it bringing life to your soul, clarity to your vision spiritually, as you begin to be shaped by God's word, as he begins to work in your life, you will come to realize that you don't only need God's word, but you want it, you love it, you desire it, you hunger for it, you thirst for it. Brothers and sisters at First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque, have we come to desire what we need most? Confessing that the word of God does a work of God and the people of God, have we come to so love and develop a taste for the word of God? Friends, let us become a people of the book, a people of the word, such that this powerful word of God will do his work among us, the people of God in such a grand and inexplicable way that only God could receive the glory. Friend, you may be here this morning and you have no idea what we're talking about. The power of God's word to shape our lives, to bring life and clarity. I want to invite you this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Open God's word this week. If, never, if, if you've never read God's word before, or it's only ever been presented to you in, in fortune cookie or Twitter length bites here and there, if it's only ever been, been explained to you as a self-help book, friend, engage God's word on a different level this week. I invite you, if you've never read God's word, start with something easy-ish. Read through the gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Be introduced to Jesus through God's word. Come to see who he is, son of God, who gave his life for sinners and was raised from the dead. Read a book this week, a a letter to the early church from Paul to the church at Ephesus. Read the letter to the Ephesians. Read it slowly. Come to understand all that God pours out in salvation to everyone who trusts in Jesus. Friend, if if you've doubted or been skeptical about the word of God, Maybe set your skepticism on the shelf this week and just engage it for the first time. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read the letter to the Ephesians and see if God does not, by his word, begin to stir something in your heart. A desire to know more about this Jesus. A desire to receive this salvation that God promises in his word that he'll pour out on all who come to trust him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us, and I know we have dry seasons in our lives spiritually, times where we're in our maybe daily or, or yearly Bible reading and we get to like Second Chronicles. We're just struggling. Friend, press through. Push on. And those times of dryness, even as you come to, come to God's word feeling like I haven't gotten anything from it, just remind yourself again, the word of God does the work of God in the people of God and let that be your prayer as you open it to read it and study it. And don't just read it and study it to consume for yourself. Be like those heads of the father's houses in Nehemiah 8 who showed up the second day to study so that they could teach those that they were responsible for teaching. Brothers and sisters at First Baptist West Albuquerque, it is my philosophy of ministry. The very point of our passage today that the word of God does the work of God in the people of God. This is what I'm committed to. I pray this is what we'll all be committed to as well. Especially in this new season, a new day. We get to gather together as church in one assembly again. 
There's something special about this day today. As we gather together as one man to say, bring the book. Bring the book. May God make it so in us. Pray with me.